All right, today we're, we're, we're still in our, our first steps series, uh, Lessons from Acts. And uh, today we'll be in Acts chapter 10, verse 11, uh, Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11 through verse 18 and chapter 11. So all of 10 and 11 through 18. Uh, and I'm calling this first Gentile, first Gentile. You know, almost since the beginning of mankind, people have been faced with the challenge of how to deal with people who are different from you. Um, you know, as a whole, humans struggle with that challenge. Uh, we like living with, interacting with, socializing with people who are like us. That's just kind of human nature. Um, that's where we're most comfortable, right? Sometimes we struggle with living with, interacting with, socializing with those who are different from us. Now, sometimes that makes sense, you know, and it's a good thing. For example, if you're a law-abiding citizen, you might find it uncomfortable uh, finding yourself in a room full of, say, bank robbers. Um, you know, you're wearing a t-shirt and a baseball cap, and they're wearing uh, masks of former presidents uh, and carrying handguns. Uh, you're planning to go to work tomorrow so you can pay the rent. They're planning on stealing thousands to buy a Lamborghini. You know, you know it's, you're in a room like that with some people like that, and you're going to be uncomfortable, uh, to say the least, as you should be, as you should be. Um, Sometimes we're uncomfortable uh, with people because of cultural differences. You know, when Jackie and I were stationed in Turkey in the Air Force, we lived, uh, for, for part of that time, we lived in a, a high-rise apartment building in downtown Adana, Turkey. Um, and each month I had to go pay the rent to uh, my landlord who, who lived on the top floor of this apartment building. Uh, uh, it was always somewhat uncomfortable when I did that because um, he spoke no English and I spoke no Turkish other than a few uh, simple greetings like merhaba and teşekkür ederim and, and bitmish and things like that. Um, and uh, so, he, uh, uh, so it was a little uncomfortable, but it was adventurous. You know, it, it was, it was, it was, I enjoyed greeting him each week even though it was uncomfortable. One day he invited me in to, to visit for a few minutes, and we went out on his patio, which was on the top floor of the, of his apartment, of the apartment building, and, and we sat down, and, and uh, there were chickens running around up there. And, uh, and I remember, I remember uh, because we didn't speak each other's language, I remember saying, chicken, bark, 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 bark. And uh, that chicken, English chicken, and so he told me the Turkish word for for chicken. Mike, you remember what the Turkish word for chicken is? I don't, I don't either. Uh, I should have looked that up. But, but, you know, he didn't do the sound effect. But, but uh, you know, it was, it was adventurous, but it was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. I felt much more at home with a group of Americans on the base, uh, for obvious reasons. Sometimes we're uncomfortable around people for the wrong reason, like prejudice, because of race or social status. You know, often this uncomfortableness is caused by simple pride. You know, we think we're better, smarter than someone else. And, and to be around those who are below us makes us uncomfortable. Um, the people, you know, the people that live in that neighborhood. Uh, the, the neighbor who doesn't keep his lawn, lawn as neat as I do. 
That's what people say about me. Um, uh, people who have those dirty jobs. People who wear socks with their sandals. That's me too. Uh, people that shop at Walmart or vacation at south of the border. You know, those kind of people. Those kind of people. Humans have always struggled in their relationship with people who are different from them. It was true for the people of Israel as well, God's chosen nation. God selected Abraham and his descendants to be the nation that would eventually bring us Jesus. In order for them to do that, God called them to be faithful to him by worshiping him, Yahweh, and Yahweh only. So one of the challenges for them to do that was the fact that they were always surrounded by people and nations who didn't worship Yahweh. They were pagans uh, who worshiped man-made pagan gods that promoted pagan lifestyles, which often were immoral lifestyles. Lifestyles that our flesh is very attracted to, like prostitutes employed at the local pagan temple for your worshiping pleasure. Yahweh made it very clear how he wanted his people to live. He laid it all out in his law that, that told them exactly how they should worship, how they should serve him, how they should live their life from day to day. And nowhere, nowhere was there any allowance for temple prostitutes or anything like that. Everything about their life was regulated by God's law for the nation of Israel, who they could marry, only people from the Jewish, uh, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, never pagans, uh, when, when they should work, when they should rest. They were even told what they could eat and what they could not eat. They should not eat. Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14 is a good passage for that. Only animals with divided hooves and who chew the cud could be eaten uh, by the nation of Israel. So that meant no pork, no pork. Only sea creatures with fins and scales could be eaten. So no oysters, no shrimp, no clams. Only birds that do not eat meat. So no eagles or hawks, although I don't know why somebody would want to eat an eagle or a hawk. Uh, so I'd be all right with that. And as far as insects go, <laughs> only hopping insects. No water bugs and cockroaches and beetles. All these little beetles that are running around. Can't eat them. Can't eat them. And I'd be all right with that, too. I'd be all right with that, too. You know, this was a very strict diet that God's people were commanded to practice. They were forbidden to eat many of the dishes that the surrounding pagans indulged in. So no pig pickings, no crab fests, no clam bakes. God commanded the people of Israel to be different from the people and the nations that surrounded them. Really for one reason, for one reason. Because if they were going to represent him to the world... And if they were going to bring the promised Messiah into the world, they needed to be different from the world. They needed to remain faithful to God and to God only. 
God knew that if they intermingled with the surrounding people and nations, indulging in their culture, marrying their men and their women, they would begin to adopt their pagan ways, their pagan lifestyles, their pagan religions. Because, because of the weakness of our flesh that every human being has, humans always tend to migrate away from God, not towards God, if they're just left to their own fleshly strength. You know, and the, whole, the Holy Spirit would change that later. But during this time, all they had to go on was their own strength of their flesh. And they always migrated away from God when they were influenced by, by, by people. The Old Testament is filled with stories of this truth just playing out over and over and over again. When Israel disobeyed God and intermingled with pagans, they always fell away from it. It was a constant struggle uh, uh, to keep Israel on the right path. So God was always sending them prophets to, to try to warn them and tell them and call them back. And, or he would allow an enemy to capture them and take them into captivity or oppress them until they could finally come to their senses and come back. And it happened over and over and over again. Well, by the time of Jesus, Israel, uh, after some pretty extensive captivity in Babylon and Assyria and things, uh, things like places like that, uh, by the time of Jesus, Israel had finally come to the point where they had seen the light and they were consistently separating themselves from people around them. They stopped, they had stopped by Jesus' day, intermingling mingling with the pagans. They no longer married uh, their men and women. They, they no longer worshipped their gods. They no longer ate their food. And that was a good thing. That was a good thing. It is what God had always wanted from them. But the problem is, by this time, they had developed a harmful attitude during this separation that was going on. At that time, in their minds, their separation was not just because they needed to stay faithful to God by avoiding pagan ways. It was also because they thought they were better than them, that they were more valuable than those pagans. People that were not like them, like the Jewish people, were called Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. And in their minds, in the Jewish mind, Gentiles were scum of the earth. They were like dogs. They were filthy, worthless people who they believed God hated as much as they hated them. And because God hated them, it was okay for them to hate them. It was okay for them to treat them like dogs. And not dogs like your pet that you love and sleeps in the bed with you. But dogs, like wild dogs that live in the streets and eat garbage, that kind of dog. Now, while leading up to the coming of Jesus, God did require and want Israel to separate themselves from pagans and their pagan ways. Um, God never hated the pagans. Now, he hated their ways. He hated their sinful ways and their pagan ways, just as he hated Israel's sinful ways. But God never hated the Gentiles. In fact, he loved them. He loved them so much that he died for them. 
God made it possible for Israel to bring us Jesus so that salvation could come for both the people of Israel and people of all nations, Gentiles, Gentiles. And it's here in Acts chapter 10 and 11 that we see this, this first revealed to the world, that God had come for everyone, including Gentiles. As the new church takes its first steps, we see God offer Jesus to the first Gentile. His name was Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion. In other words, he was a Roman soldier who was in charge of about 100 soldiers. That's where the, the term centurion comes from. He lived in Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Palestine. Jerusalem was a Jewish capital. Uh, Caesarea was the, named after Caesar, was the Roman capital. This was a port city on the Mediterranean Sea, mostly populated by Romans, including the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Let's read Uh, verses uh, 1 through 8 in chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angels who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Cornelius, a Gentile soldier, uh, had at some point in his life, as we see here, realized, he's called a God-fearing Gentile, Uh, he realized that the God of Israel was the true God. Uh, Now we assume that Cornelius had been a pagan at some point, but he had abandoned his Roman gods and pagan religion and was now worshiping and praying to Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel. Um, And this new faith in the true God compelled him to give money to the poor. That's one of the things that that came from this. Um, Now, he had not fully converted to Judaism. We need to understand that. Um, He, uh, a lot of Gentiles sometimes would realize, hey, you're the real God and I'm going to worship you. They were called God-fearing Jews, which meant they weren't uh, converted to Judaism because a Gentile could convert and become a Jew if if he wanted to. He had not done that yet. But he had accepted Yahweh as the true God. And and it's interesting, God chose this man who you might say was sort of already halfway there. You know, he didn't have to start from scratch and learn who the true God was because he was already there. God chose this man to be the first Gentile to receive salvation from Jesus. Uh, God came to him, uh, to Cornelius, in a vision and instructed him to summon Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus, to come to him. Meanwhile, the next day, a few miles down the coast in the seaside town of Joppa, Peter also receives a vision. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. About noon 
on the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, uh, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, Peter's host uh, is in Joppa is Simon the Tanner. Tanner simply means that he's a guy that works with leather. That's what a tanner does. Uh, so Simon, Simon the Tanner had a house on the sea, um, and, and, and it had a typical uh, rooftop patio, much like my landlord in Turkey did, except rather be, being on the 10th floor, it was like the second floor. Uh, so Peter went up on that patio to pray to God one day, and God put him in a trance. And, and while he was in the trance, he, he sh- showed him this bizarre vision. A large sheet-like object held by four corners was let down from heaven, and on that sheet were all kinds of animals, animals that were on the do-not-eat list for the Jewish people, uh, like pigs and clams and snakes and crabs and rabbits. And, and God said to Peter, all right, Peter, eat these things. Eat them. Eat them. But rather than Peter doing what I would have done and said, awesome, awesome, now I can have a pork chop or, or some sh- fried shrimp or some rabbit stew. Oh, I've never had rabbit stew, but, it, but uh, I could have some now if I wanted to. Rather than, than being excited about that, Peter balked at that. Ain't no way, no way. I've never eaten anything unclean, God, and I'm not going to start today. All of his life, all of Peter's life, he had been taught and believed that these animals were sinful for him to eat. And you know what? They were. They were. But God took this time to officially change the rules. You know, God had called them unclean before. Yes, Peter was right. But now God is saying, no, now they're clean. Now they're clean. And that's okay, right? Isn't it all right for God? God made the rule. Can't he change it if he wants to? And he did. He did. Now these animals are no longer unclean. It's okay to eat them, Peter. It's okay to eat them. God said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, why did Peter receive this message from God in this way? Well, it's not hard to figure out, right? It wasn't hard for Peter to figure out either. He was getting Peter ready to take on an even more difficult change in his life. You know, it's one thing to eat steamed crab. (laughs) Uh, It's another thing to enter a Gentile's home and eat with them. You know, Jews did not eat things like pork ever, ever, and they did not fellowship in any way with a Gentile, ever, ever. Entering a Gentile's home would be like entering a house of prostitution. You know, it was filthy, and if you entered a Gentile's home, it made you filthy. And so they did not do it. Now, this vision was preparing Peter's heart to make a drastic change in all that he knew 
to be right and pure. Let's read verse 16 through 23. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now again, God chose as the first Gentile to receive Christ, uh, a man who at least had earned the respect of many of the Jewish people because he had decided to worship the one true God. Uh, now, he had not fully converted to Judaism, so they still would not have gone into his home because he was still a Gentile. Um, but at least they had respect for him. So again, God was wise for this guy to be the first Gentile convert. God told Peter to go with these men. They told him about Cornelius and his vision from an angel and the angel's request that he asked Peter to come and speak to him. God is telling Peter to go visit a Gentile in Caesarea, a Roman soldier, and talk to him. Now, already getting what was going on here, Peter agrees, and he invites these three Gentiles, one of them a Roman soldier, into the house. You kind of wonder what Simon the Tanner might have thought of that, because it was Simon's house. But hopefully Simon was all right. He probably trusted Peter. Uh, and, and these three Gentiles came in, spent the night there, probably ate together. Verse 23 through 26, the next day Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Peter, along with several, of, several other believers from Joppa, headed up the coast to Cornelius' house. Cornelius was waiting there with his family and friends to receive him. And the first thing Peter did was entered his house. He entered his house. And this is something that a good Jew would never do. Yet Peter understood the vision that he had received from God. What God has made clean is clean, is clean. Peter understood that God had made it okay now to associate with Gentiles. The restriction of never doing that with a Gentile had been officially lifted by God. Now the task of keeping Israel pure, free from pagan influence, so that Jesus could come, which was the reason for all those restrictions, that is no longer needed. It's no longer needed because Jesus is here now. Now the task was not to preserve Israel from evil. Now the task was to save all mankind from evil, from sin. And the only way that anybody is going to be able to do that is 
to go among them. To go among them. But unlike the Israelites, who, you know, in their, in their situation had no power at all to fight the desires of their flesh. They did not have the Holy Spirit in, in them, indwelling in them. Um, and so therefore, the only power they had was their own fleshly power. And, they, and it always failed them. Christians have been, have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that power, you know, we can reach out to Gentiles and we have the ability to resist the temptations of the flesh, to indulge in their lifestyles. And, and, and with that same power, it can help us persuade them to embrace Jesus, his forgiveness, uh, freedom from sin. And this is what Peter is quickly understanding. Let's look at verse 27, 29. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius then recounts his experience with the angel and the vision that he had. And, he, and he, Cornelius concludes with this, verse 33. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you, Peter, to tell us. And then Peter responds with this, verse 34 and 35. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter went on to tell Cornelius and his family about Jesus. He preached a gospel sermon just like he did on the day of Pentecost on that first day. He told Cornelius and his family about how Jesus had died for them and how he rose from the grave and how he and the other apostles were witnesses of his resurrection. And he, he, Peter concluded with this, verse 43, All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, being a God-fearing Jew who believed in Yahweh, he may have been very familiar with some of those prophecies in the Old Testament, including the fact that Jesus had been prophesied to come uh, to save everyone, including him, including him and his family. And then a very important thing happened, uh, beginning with verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message the circumcised believers who had come with Peter, in other words, the Jewish Christians who had come with Peter, uh, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speak in tongues and praising God. You know, before everyone's eyes there that day, including all those Jews who had come with Peter from Joppa, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his family and his friends just as, he, just as he had come upon the apostles on that first day of the church, perhaps with wind and sound. Uh, but certainly they were given the ability to miraculously speak languages that they had never studied before, just like the apostles did on the first day of the church. And then we read later in chapter 11, when Peter is recounting this whole story to some Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, 
Uh, Peter said this in verse 11, verse 15, as I began to speak here at Cornelius's house, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. You know, all Christians, every single one of us, every Christian receives the Holy Spirit that comes and lives in them uh, to give them power and give them guidance. Uh, We read about that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. That's what Peter tells us there. But the first Jews and the first Gentiles and, and likely the first Samaritans. We're not talking about the first Samaritans, uh, but we read about that in Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 25, and it seems that it happened there too. Uh, for the first Jew and Gentile and Samaritans, as a sign of authenticity, uh, they received the Holy Spirit in this spectacular way so that all could see that this is real. This is real. Salvation for Gentiles is real. Look, look at how the Holy Spirit came on these guys. On this day, The gospel of Jesus was preached and offered to people of all nations, really, for the first time. And Cornelius and his whole family were baptized and became Christians that day. Uh, Jesus was not just for Jews. Not just for Jews. Jesus gave his life for everyone. And it took some time and teaching for the Jewish Christians to accept this. You know, it didn't happen overnight. It took some time. But eventually they did. And with the help of people like Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Mark and Luke, the gospel began to be spread throughout the Roman world to Gentiles. Jesus came to save all people, Jew and Gentile. And while that was a challenge for those first Christians to embrace, I'm going to guess that that's not going to be an issue for me and you. You know, We don't have problems with Gentiles accepting Jesus, do we? Because we are Gentiles. All of us are Gentiles. So that's not an issue for us. And so uh, because of that, it it might be a temptation to say, okay, well, that's an interesting story in church history. Now we'll move on to the next lesson because that didn't really apply to us. But, well, wait a minute. Let's take a moment to think about this truth that Jesus came to save everyone. One of the arguments that the Jewish Christians were tempted to use against reaching out to Gentiles might have been, you know, where their minds went first. When they thought about Gentiles, even though they knew, hey, the gospel's for Gentiles too. When they thought about Gentiles, what are some things that might have gone through their mind? Maybe they said, yeah, but look at how they live their lives. They're pagans. They worship false gods. They live immoral lifestyles. They're disgusting. How many Jewish Christians failed to reach out to some Gentiles because of the Gentiles' sinful lifestyles. And they were disgusted by it, and so they just avoided them. I imagine in those first years of the church, that played a big part in whether Jewish Christians reached out to Gentiles to share Jesus. What might have helped them get beyond the Gentiles' sinful lifestyles and behaviors and lead them to reach out to them with Jesus? What might have helped them? What if if their first thought toward them, rather than being, you're so filthy and immoral, their first thought was, you know what? Jesus died for them, for their sin, just like he died for me and my sins. I need to reach out to them to save them from their sins. They need Jesus just like I need Jesus. What if that was their first thought, rather than how filthy they were and how they lived their lives? 
You know, today as Christians, we're faced with people in our culture who are very different from us, don't we? You know, with the wild colors of the hair and, and markings on their skin and piercings on their face. Not sinful things, but really different than the way we do things, right? Some around us live immoral lifestyles, no doubt. Lifestyles and beliefs that are far away from God's design. Now, I know for me, my first instinct, my fleshly instinct, is to avoid them, to just avoid them. Turn the other way, walk across the street. That's just too different for me to even bother. How could anyone live like that? How could anyone believe like that, for goodness sakes? And and understand, I'm not talking so much about radicals in government and those who try to force us to comply, shame us into agreeing with them. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about companies who embrace those lifestyles with special days and special events and dare us to complain and cancel us if we do. I'm not talking about that. No, I'm talking about the person that lives next door. Just that guy that lives next door. Or that couple that lives across the street. The person that we work with. Or that might come visit us one Sunday. That's what I'm talking about. And if Jesus died for my sin, and he died for theirs. Shouldn't our first thought be, man, they need Jesus just like I do. They need Jesus just like I do. And rather than simply dismissing them like our flesh wants to do, we enter their house and eat with them. Share the love of Christ with them in some way. We don't condone what they're doing. We should never, ever condone sin as a way to reach out to people. Some Christians and churches do that, and that's wrong. That's sinful to do that. But find ways to simply help them see the love of Jesus. By meeting a need that they might have. By by a friendly conversation across the fence or across the street or at lunchtime uh, at work. Uh, By, hey, inviting them to church one Sunday. So, perhaps eventually, while we show them the love of Christ in any way that we can, eventually they might understand the truth of Christ from his word because of our love. Let's not let people's lifestyles and beliefs overshadow their desperate need for Jesus. You know, the same Jesus that saved us from our sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this tremendous lesson that's hard for us. It was hard for Peter. It was hard for the Jewish Christians of that day. Uh, And it's hard for us today to just (laughs) go among people that are different from us, especially sinful people. Um, It's so much easier to just ignore them and walk the other way. Um, but Lord, help us to, to try to find ways to show love to them, not to condone what they're doing or rationalize what they're doing, but to just love them in some way. 
Let that be the first thought. Let that be the first thing we want to do. Um, because they need Jesus just like we do. So, Father, give us opportunities and people that we know. Bring people in our path that, um, that we can show the love of Christ for. You know, they may not listen. They might, they might reject it. But help us to at least offer it, the love of Jesus, so that they may be one day can see the truth of Jesus and embrace that. We thank you, Father, for this lesson. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.